This is an ABC podcast. And hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to RN Summer. This is God Forbid, where we're revisiting some of the best from the year gone by. Video games have come a long way since they reached mainstream popularity in the 70s and 80s. Remember those arcade games like Pong or Pac-Man with the blocky graphics and that gameplay which focused on timing and coordination? Well, modern-day video games deliver hyper-reality, graphics so sharp and clear that it feels like you really are shooting your way through a zombie apocalypse or racing a supercar through Paris or even flying a Boeing 747, the simulator almost indistinguishable from the real thing. And it's far from a lonely experience because the most popular games, such as World of Warcraft or Call of Duty, now take place in online worlds populated by literally millions of other players. Some argue as simulated experience becomes steadily more convincing that more and more young people are opting out of the real world. Specialists in screen and gaming disorders say the issue affects tens of thousands of Australian children and teens, and parents need urgent help. In fact, several academics, child psychologists and psychiatrists signed a joint statement calling for more government action. But how different is this truly from the kid glued for hour upon hour to the arcade games or pinball machines of of yesteryear? There remains debate about whether tech addiction is a genuine thing at all. So is it time to declare a war on devices or just leave the kids alone. Well, Jocelyn Brewer is a Sydney-based registered psychologist with a special interest in the psychology of technology. In particular, she helps individuals and families manage technology use before and while it becomes a problem. And she also helps prevent and treat so-called internet addictions. Jocelyn, a warm welcome to God Forbid. Thanks for having me. Now, a younger person listening would be justified, wouldn't they, in rolling their eyes. Uh, These are middle-aged people, in my case at least, uh, bemoaning digital addiction. But when does it become a concern for you? Oh, look, it can become a concern really when we stop kind of participating in life in a way that we know is kind of healthy for us. So not getting yourself out the door into school five days a week is generally the key thing that we see happening primarily when it gets very problematic. But it's just that slow creep, I guess, of technology, especially given the last couple of years where uh, we have thank goodness, had technology there to support us through the pandemic. But, you know, it's that slow creep because it gets into all these different crevices due to the, the nature of the mobility of this technology. So, yeah, there's there's lots of different factors that we, we need to think about in terms of when it's a problem and, and stopping it getting to the pointy end. And stopping it getting to the pointy end, you, you say just turn it off, the just turn it off approach isn't terribly helpful. The idea of technology is a drug. Yeah, look, I think we're beyond just turn it off or just say no to your kid and all of those sorts of really simplistic kind of notions that really are unhelpful for parents. I don't particularly love the analogy of uh, technology being like a drug. It's not a substance in the same way. And we as the adults are handing it out sometimes. Schools are even mandating its use for learning. I guess we're not also giving kids the skills to understand what safe and savvy use looks like. So just because young people are really fantastic at learning games and all of the tech skills, that doesn't actually give them the social and emotional skills to be those safe, savvy users of really quite godlike technology. Well, interesting you say that because our other God forbid panellist is Andy Crouch, uh, an American scholar, a journalist and author of The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. Welcome to Australia, Andy. Thank you so much. You're not a technophobe. Mm, Not at all. But you're disappointed by technology. (laughs) I actually think this is a very common experience to both love it and find yourself regretting certain features of it. Well, that's life. (laughs) That is life. But I think especially tech produces an extraordinary exhilaration uh, when it works well and extraordinary frustration and disappointment when it doesn't. So I'm trying to unpack why that might be. You mean like having trouble working out how the app works or you're referring to other things that don't work well? Well, 
maybe both levels. I do think it's interesting how frustrating we find our devices when they don't work. But I also think we all feel a certain dis-ease. And I really appreciate what Jocelyn said. That we're grasping for metaphors, aren't we? For what isn't working quite right. It's not quite like a drug and that we see good uses for a lot of this technology, maybe even for kids in certain ways. But it's not just a simply healthy, positive addition either. There's something mixed going on. Maybe medicine is the word. Medicine or, you know, I think Jocelyn uses the word nutrition. And, you know, we have to eat. I actually think tech is very good for some things. It's especially good once you become adult and you're in the world of work. We're using a whole stack of technology right now to do the work that we do. And I don't think we feel like it's terribly addictive or frustrating. It's enabling. But there's other things it's not as good at. And I might uh, say it's not very good at forming or developing human beings. So it's really good once you've been formed, not so good in forming you. Yes. Given that the technology today is unrecognizable from what it was 20 years ago, Hmm. what relevance does the books you read from 2000 years ago have, (laughs) the Bible? You might think that the Bible and other ancient texts, wisdom texts, have very little to say about it. But in fact, I think I think technology has gone in a particular direction that is not at all written into the science that it's built on. So to me, technology is science plus a dream. It's not just pure application of what we know about the world, because we could apply that in any number of ways. It's zeros and ones at the base level. It's just information theory and electronics and power. It's a whole stack of things that we learned about the world that we could deploy in any number of ways. But the dream towards which we've deployed it is actually rooted in very ancient human dreams. And I would call it the dream of magic, the dream of, actually, Jocelyn used the word godlike, the dream of being like God or some imagination of God. Once you start talking about what dream are we pursuing with our knowledge about the world, then suddenly these ancient texts become extremely relevant because people have been seeking magic, seeking godlike power for a very long time in lots of different ways. So the age-old question is, what would Jesus download? (laughs) (laughs) Age-old for the last 10 years or so. Well, Jesus Jesus would be playing serious games and some of the really fantastic alternative games to the big Hollywood blockbuster style things that you hear about. I call them the digital hot chips, right? Really, Um, Justin? Yeah, Minecraft, Roblox, Fortnite, digital hot chips. Whereas if you have a look at serious games, these are pro-social, some of them are citizen science games where you're actually helping universities solve really big world problems like finding vaccines for HIV. Right, right. Blessed or blasphemous, Andy? (laughs) (laughs) I actually agree. There's some wonderful ways to use this whole layer of technology in profoundly human ways. And I I don't want to speak for Jesus. Uh, He might endorse that. When we look at what he actually did, he lived in an age of actually tremendous technological advance. I mean, not technology in the modern sense, but the, the Roman world had extraordinary engineering available to its powerful people. It is really interesting, and I do speak from a Christian point of view when I look at this, that is, I believe there was something uniquely important about Jesus' life. And he lives his whole life very much on the margin of all those technical achievements. Uh, He rides a donkey into the city, not a horse, not a chariot. He never writes anything down himself. Now his followers pick up what he taught and write about it, but he doesn't even use writing, which is a very base layer human technology. So I might have actually slightly different take on, you know, what would Jesus download? How much tech would Jesus use? I think Jesus somehow had a sense of his own vocation that did not require him even to use the technique available to other human beings around him at the time, let alone the ones that we have access to. He somehow didn't need it to be the person he needed to be. Did that make him a technophobe? Well, we don't think about aqueducts and Jesus the same way we do with (laughs) Romans. He was very studiously neutral. So another base layer of technology is money, right? So the money of the ancient world has the image of the emperor on it. And when someone brings Jesus a coin with the image, and and the coin is, it is a kind of technology. It's a technology of Of economic value, right? As well as a technology of power, because that image of the emperor is there to convey a kind of power. And Jesus actually has, they expect him to condemn it, to revolt against it. And he actually says, give the emperor what's the emperor's. He's strangely indifferent uh, or orthogonal to the technical achievements of Rome, the power of Rome. It's not his game. He's playing a different game, which is, I think, the game of being truly human. Well, Jocelyn Brewer, a Polish game developer, will release a first-person simulation game 
where you can play the role of Jesus of Nazareth. <laughs> it, it's uh, it's called sounds I, like a serious game. <laughs> yeah, what's called I am Jesus Christ entices users to become the Messiah, perform miracles, interact with the cast of biblical figures, and travel around the Holy Land from Jerusalem to Galilee. Is this a theological turning point or, or a natural evolution? You know, does this say something about our age, making ourselves the Messiah? I think it says something about just how immersive technology really is and where we're heading with things like the metaverse and Web3, the next kind of iteration of a very decentralised web where we might not need to get on planes, COVID aside, to actually have some of these experiences as if they really were 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Well, we're looking more at games, the more popular ones up next, although this one could become popular. I mean, the original became quite popular. It's God Forbid, RN. In Australia, almost 80% of children and teens play online games. And with the online game industry being worth approximately $300 billion, of course, there's a large variety at their fingertips. Virtual world-building games, first-person shooters, battle royales, strategy, multiplayer games, just to name a few. So what exactly is it about gaming that young Australians find appealing? What are the possible benefits of playing games and at what point does it become an addiction? Well, psychologist Brad Marshall specialises in the area of gaming disorders in children and teens. We'll hear what he has to say in a second, but first from Rad Yeo. She's host of the ABC Good Game Spawn Point, a show for young gamers. Everybody loves to play in some way. Play is a really, really important part of the human experience and video games is a way that... Um, especially as you get older, you can play in a way that your peers are interested. And I love it for younger people because it actually teaches you a variety of skills that can be a lot harder to acquire in other places. So it covers problem solving. It covers um, being a good loser. I think that's something that's really important for young people to learn. Um, teamwork, strategy. It also gives you a lot of digital literacy, which we can't uh, underestimate how important that is in this day and age. How do you manage the endlessness of video games? Like, how do you stop? Uh, when I was growing up, I think I definitely did find it harder because, like I said, games are enjoyable and you want to keep going. But it's also really important to remember that games need to exist, not just can exist or should exist, but need to exist as part of a balanced lifestyle. I don't think that there's anything that kids can or should do to the exclusion of everything else. But I do think that games as a part of everything else can be really healthy. And I think that's important to remember. The real key is learning how to encourage your kid to enjoy it, but then also stop. So there it is. Gaming is great in moderation. Like Rad said, no activity is healthy if that's all you ever do. And when video games are made to be endless and addictive, not a lot of kids have the self-discipline to manage that. Brad Marshall is the unplugged psychologist. He's the director of the Internet Addiction Clinic at Kidspace. Uh, look, what I would say is that too much gaming is when it's interfering in life and whether that be in their behaviour or their social life, academics, um, sleep, any of these sorts of areas. I guess if those areas start to ping for parents, then perhaps it's a little bit too much. So if we get to the problematic gaming, what are the signs a parent should look out for and when should they start to worry? I, I mean, there are a million and one, but let's go through some of the really big ones. The first one that I always mention is sleep. So if your child is struggling to get to sleep on time, uh, dragging their feet because of gaming or waking up in the middle of the night to go gaming, which kids you know, do quite often do, or waking up early. You know, if kids are setting an alarm for 5 or 6 a.m. so they can get a bit of gaming in before school, that would be a pretty, a pretty big warning sign. The other big warning sign would be sort of drops off in, in their education, so getting homework in on time, getting assessments done. Also, we look at their behaviour. So if they're getting more sort of stroppy when they're asking them to get off, punching walls, yelling, swearing, um, that's all a pretty good sign as well. So you've got some, you know, the start of some there. Tell me what is the difference 
between a problematic amount, which you've already explored, and then the addiction to gaming? Well, let me start with addiction. Typically what we're talking about there in the field is sort of the the 1% to 3% of kids. So that's a very small range. And what you're talking about when you talk about addiction is this idea of sort of them struggling with their tolerance and having withdrawal effects when they get off and it affecting relationships, a classic addiction um, definition. When you take that versus problematic use, Usually we're talking about, most studies say, between 10 and 20% of kids will have something like a problematic use. And that's psychologist Brad Marshall ending the clip from the ABC podcast, Parental as Anything, hosted by Maggie Dent. We'll put a link to the full show on our website. Well, Jocelyn Brewer, what do you say to the families who are in that 1% to 2%, 2 to 3% addiction category and then the larger problematic category? Yeah, well, what I what I say to that really tricky point is come and talk to me, come and talk to psychologists and, and folks with training like, like Brad as well to actually get some support to wean your kid off those games. It's a, quite a long and slow process and it actually requires the whole family to be involved because often parents really need to reset those boundaries and rethink a whole range of parenting approaches in order to get the young person back into kind of a daily functional life. That's uh, easier said than done, especially for parents who really don't know what they're talking about in this area. Yes. All of us adults, I guess, that didn't grow up with this technology to to really dip their toe in the digital playgrounds and, and have a, like Brad was talking about, to remember how to play and to kind of see what their, their developing brains are up against in terms of some of the design principles used in games that do really make them quite sticky and, and hard to put down. So helping parents actually understand what's going on from that perspective. And then also what we do is build I guess, real world uh, opportunities for getting their psychological needs met. And those needs are basically for connection, for competence and for control, which is generally what's called self-determination theory. So usually within a game, kids are really, really competent. They're playing at a level they feel successful and they have mastery. So that feels good. They're playing with their friends or they're playing with like-minded strangers that create a sense of community. And then they have control. So they get to choose what they're playing, who they're playing as what skins they use and loot boxes things like that which when you're in a classroom you probably don't get to choose much about what maths you're doing for that lesson so these are some of the things that underpin when it gets really tricky that we work with then to get young people back into that kind of more healthy gaming hobbies rather than habits yeah andy crouch it's a very attractive suite of qualities a game can give a young person I thought that was so well put. Connection, competence, control. That's actually what we're all looking for at all stages of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah. emerging adulthood, adolescence is a particularly fraught and vulnerable time where you're entering into this, into this world that you don't feel very competent. You know, even the fact that games have rules uh, and you can figure out the rules. You know, what's the rule of being a, an adult in the real world? What's the rule of being a guest on this show? Like it's, it's a fluid thing that I don't feel competent necessarily, uh, especially when I enter into it. And to be able to go into this gaming world And I think this is why games have always been part of childhood, actually, at all seasons, at all times, is that it gives you a a kind of sandbox where you can have those things in greater quality and quantity than you can have out in the kind of chaotic, (laughs) messy, but also more deeply real world. Games are ultimately just a simulation. So I also loved Jocelyn. Hobbies and habits is a, a good uh, distinction. I actually think I want my kids playing all kinds of games. I don't necessarily want them playing games that have been actively designed to feed the need for control, to feed the need for a kind of early sense of competence. You know, but you don't have a say in that. Like my kid knows more about the value of a V buck than he does about a an Australian dollar. That's a that's a digital as a gaming parent, currency. You, as a parent, you don't have a say in it. Do you mean that you feel like they're way ahead of me? Yeah, yeah. I think that's also something concerning. And I think part of it is that parents can actually get more involved in what their kids are doing. We can- By buying them V-Bucks. That's, <laughs> it's like, that's how I get his attention. <laughs> but I mean, but there is a point that learning about V-Bucks or if you're watching Bluey dollar bucks actually translates into those real world understandings. It still sure. operates in a capitalistic kind of way <laughs> of getting ahead and having more is good. So, you know, while we kind of go, oh, that's a silly fantasy world, what would you do with that? so much of it is Uh translatable into 
whatever we call the real world these days. Well, that actually is the translation point, isn't it? It's like, Dad, hmm. can I have a thousand V-Bucks? And I go, well, this is what you could have if you spent that money in the real world. And it's just something that hasn't crossed his mind. Wow. You know, this raises And he's also- 28. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Uh, This raises a really important point, which is that we do also have to recommend the fact that actually our whole stack of what we call technology now is very embedded in a capitalist system. And I think there's all kinds of benefits to markets and to market economies, but it used to be that very large parts of human life, not least childhood, took place outside of the market outside of a commodified mm. world. And of course, family arguably can never be appropriately commodified. We don't pay off our parents. And unless you get really desperate as a parent, you don't pay off your child. We try to resist commodification. But as we enter the technological world, and especially as, as children and young adults enter it, and it's not just video games, it's things like social media, which in its way has its, even if it doesn't have a literal currency like V-Bucks, it has the currency of likes, the currency of attention, all that. And you are learning to operate in a commodified system in domains of life that used to be entirely outside of that. I think parents are very right to resist that and Is to offer right? their children different ways. What about the number of friends you have in the schoolyard? That's a commodity. The unique thing about money is that it's countable, storable, fungible power. That is, you can know how much you can have, you can exchange it for other things, and you can save it for later. And it did not used to be the case that your friends were commodifiable. They weren't countable. It was part of the mystery, especially of middle school, I would say, is how many friends do I have? What is the quality of my relationship? And that, how many do I want as well? I mean, Exactly. And those mysteries are part of maturation. Now, when I turn that into extremely commodifiable, measurable quantities, and then I learn how to game the system because kids figure out how to game the system. I'm thinking about social media in particular. That really changes the dynamic of that experience of growing up. And suddenly more and more of your life is a market. I think all of us, I don't like to talk about it as kids versus adults. I think all of us are dealing with this. How much of my life do I actually want to be driven by the logic of the market? Because to the extent I use technology, I'm stepping into the world of the market. Unavoidably. Unavoidably. Technology is developed and progresses in the direction of market forces, not what's best for ordinary embodied human life, by and large. Now, sometimes that overlaps. When when the hospital can uh, dose my intravenous drug at a very precise way, that serves me very well as a human being if I need that medication. But there's other times where there's a huge divergence between what the market wants and will reward and what's actually good for ordinary embodied human life. And, and Jocelyn Brewer, what do you say that to the idea that the problems Andy mentions will be slowly resolved as the technology gets better because it will simulate real world even more effectively. Well, a lot of the questions about the impact of the metaverse are very fascinating because Mm -hmm. things like human empathy and that ability to actually connect with our humanity and kindness and one another is actually likely to be improved because we are, rather than just typing into a keyboard and forgetting the eye contact and the other human on the other side of that, we will be facing them again. So there are some interesting questions that come up when we kind of think about that next iteration that maybe we can reverse some of that icky stuff in terms of the capitalistic kind of commodification of childhood. That's definitely going to continue because I can imagine lots of kids are going to get very expensive VR headsets with (laughs) very little introduction to some of the safety issues that we know are in existence in VR and, you know, extended reality worlds already. So, look, I I think without painting the good versus evil side here, there are big questions to be asked about all of these things. And in Australia, we're really lucky we have the Office of the E-Safety Commissioner asking all of these questions and creating frameworks like the Safety by Design framework that really asks for all of the big tech companies to consider all of these principles when we're designing and creating new technologies. On our end, it is God Forbid. I'm James Carlton. We're with Jocelyn Brewer and Andy Crouch. Much more ahead. (laughs) 
We live in a world with an abundance of devices and countless opportunities for digital distraction. In fact, a US research company found that we touch our phone more than two and a half thousand times a day on average. Think of the hygiene issues. James Williams was a Google engineer for over a decade before he became a design ethicist. He makes the case that big tech, companies like Meta, Apple, Google, are going overboard when it comes to grabbing our attention, even monopolizing it. One of the things that I take a lot of inspiration from is the the observation by economist Herbert Simon in the 1970s who said that um, when information becomes abundant, attention is what becomes the scarce resource. And, you know, I think one really good way to look at this information digital environment we've built is that all these platforms, all these services are essentially kind of attention drills is what they fundamentally do. They, they exist uh, and then they're incentivized to capture as much of our attention as they can. Um, and they become very, very good at it. I always think when insiders become, well, outsiders and start um, telling us what's really going on, we get the best insights. Give us an example of how big tech companies are trying to manipulate and persuade us when it comes to our attention and our habits. Sure. Well, it's it's hard to pick just one because the, really basically every interaction we have with digital technologies is, is, is kind of persuasively designed. Anything from, you know, the placement of a button or the color of a button in an app or a website um, all the way down to the the algorithms that are putting you know, certain things in front of you instead of others, like videos or, you know, search results or things like this. So really the entire environment is persuasively designed. You know, one one mechanism that has been talked about a lot and, and I think is we see across these different services is kind of the, the way in which rewards, psychological rewards can be randomized. So the way a, a news feed on a social platform uh, will give you that extra little reward to kind of keep you you know, pulling down to refresh will keep you coming back to the site. A lot of these mechanisms are, and designs are, are essentially the same as what's used in in contexts like machine gambling to keep people keep people hooked. And and in, in some places, have already started to regulate them under that understanding, like you know, the loot boxes and video games, for instance. So really, it, basically anything you can kind of point to in our digital environment, there's there's going to be some persuasive element to it. What do you mean when you say that spending too long on digital media can rob us of our true potential? I mean, like I said, I, I think attention is is this thing we're really only starting to understand how to talk about and protect because historically there there was, wasn't this kind of threat to it. The threats were to uh, you know, speech, information, expression, and we you know we rightly value defending those. I think we're only kind of grasping for the the, the starting points on how to understand. How do we think about attention? How do we protect it? But yeah, but like the success of our lives and arguably the human project, I think, depends on our ability to you know, pay attention to things in the right way. So this can be in the moment, you know, being able to do what we want to do, but it can be, um, it can rob us of the ability to sort of live by the values uh, or interests that we, that we have over the longer term. Um, and in a deeper level, I think it can even sort of take away these opportunities to to reflect uh, and and come up with uh, and define what is what it is we want to do and who we want to be in the first place. That's why it's you know all the more concerning that it's it's under such uh, such siege today by these forces that really ought to be on our side. And that's James Williams, an ex Google engineer turned design ethicist, speaking with Patricia Cavellis on RN Breakfast. We'll put a link to the full conversation on our website. Well, Andy Crouch, let's just take everything he said as true, why is it necessarily anything different? We've always had things at our disposal that have been able to be used for good and for bad. Certainly, certainly. Though we have also always recognized that there's some category of these things that promise outsized rewards. (laughs) So every religion, in a way, has its idols. Uh, Every culture has its magic uh, and its magicians. And what magic and in the biblical language of 
idolatry. It's really a biblical idea. Other religions don't call them that. That's what the Bible calls them. Recognize that not all material things are offered to us with the same neutrality. <laughs> Some material things, or and really the systems that grow up around them, are offered with the promise, if you actually buy into this, you will have an extraordinary expansion of your power. Or also often an extraordinary like uh, reduction in your vulnerability and in, in the effort required to be human. Because I really think of magic... Are you talking about Christianity or technology? <laughs> well, Christianity is a very has an interesting dialectic in that over and over Christians try to find the way, whether it's indulgences in the kind of pre-Reformation era or certain patterns of prayer, even in modern Pentecostalism, that we imagine this will get us access to the divine. But then there's this counter trend in biblical religion, really first the Jewish religion and then Christian, that says, no, actually all of that is a mirage. That's not how you get the thing you want. And that actually this quest for magic or this quest for kind of a shortcut to the divine is actually quite dangerous. And I would put a, a great deal of modern technology actually in that idol bucket. I know that we all feel like we live in a very secular world, but we don't feel like we have idols. We imagine that's part of a, some kind of primitive religion or some other religion. But I actually think this quest for transcendence, it doesn't attach itself to everything in the same way. There are some things that we pick up because we think, ah, this is going to give me the power that I need uh, with the effortlessness that I imagine God would have, because uh, it's ultimately based on a kind of vision of what it would be like to be God. God can just act and not have to worry about it. Wouldn't I like to live that way? So that's the difference between an idol and a god, the effort. Yes. The idol says it's easier than you think. Uh, just give up this one thing to worship me. And it, it, so we can think about it in terms of attention. If you'll just redirect your attention, please, to this glowing rectangle, <laughs> you will have this portal into something close to omniscience, right? Which is how it feels when you're scrolling through that endless scroll. Idols always imply that it's uh, it's actually not that hard to become efficacious in the world, to make a difference in the world. And then there's this counter trend from biblical religion that says, no, actually, that's ultimately a lie. It's actually going to enslave you. It's actually going to start controlling you. Uh, you'll find you actually have less attention to pay over time. You'll become more and more distracted. And I think a lot of us are aware that this is sort of happening with uh, some of the devices we start out so excited about using. Wow, Jocelyn Brewer, a, an age-old interpretation of a very modern yeah. technology. I, I love it. I mean, I definitely think we do idolise technology. We really think that it's going to solve so many of our problems mm. and we don't ask the right questions when we are dipping our toe into those waters. When we get our kid their first smartphone, well, what mm. are the boundaries that go with that? And people like this James Williams guy and Tristan Harris before him, who was another ex-Google employee, <laughs> they're kind of the Judases here maybe that they're <laughs> they're calling out and, and, you know, pulling back the curtain on what's really happening and asking us and helping us ask the right questions around what we're giving up to participate and to have this easy access or these problems solved. Um, we see it too, even with educational technology, that if we just, you know, buy more of this or get kids, you know, yes. that, that they will become suddenly engaged. And the fact is humans still have to teach young people whether or not they're using technology or a chalkboard. There's still that connection that is incredibly important to whether or not you love learning. It still comes back to the human. But if you love learning, what could be a greater gift than technology? Just Wikipedia, you know, if that's an idol, you know, yeah. make yeah. me a... Um, <laughs> a devotee. Uh, yeah. Uh, what do they call them? Pre-Christians? A pagan? Yeah, if that's an idol, make me a pagan. <laughs> Well, I think learning is a lot more than information. Exactly. I sort of say that a question that can be Googled is not a learning activity. In my presentations, wow. I actually give a piece of primary evidence because I wanted to find out how long it took for Fortnite to reach 50 million people. Games like Angry Birds took just 19 days. And I couldn't find this information on the internet, so I went to the source. I went to Tim Sweeney, who created Fortnite. I tweeted him and I said, hey, Tim, how long did it take for Fortnite to reach 50 million people? And he said, about six months. So kids absolutely love that in my presentation when I show them, Tim Sweeney tweeted me back because I couldn't <laughs> Google this question. So I think we have to be careful of not confusing learning and information. Mm. Leading influencer Jocelyn Brewer is with <laughs> us. <laughs> and Andy Crouch, you liked what she said, I see. 
I did. I love it. I, I think part of the challenge in the technical age, we're still in the intoxication stage with so much of this and things that really did require tremendous effort. You know, for example, just compiling a, no a lexical knowledge of a language, which before dictionaries was quite an achievement. And then mm -hmm. you had dictionaries. Now you can just look it all up. I use, you know, my little dictionary app on my computer all the time. And something that once was actually a learning kind of activity that people worked very hard to achieve becomes just a technical activity. But that just moves the horizon of learning. It's not actually impressive that I can Google all this stuff and get Wikipedia to answer all my questions. Because ultimately now the learning frontier is, is elsewhere. But it frees you up to learn more sophisticated oh, things. You don't have to mm -hmm. learn how to make a pair of shoes. Yes, no, I completely agree. And that's why I'm so not anti-technology. However, it's actually very tricky. If your imagination is set like, oh, well, people have learned once they know all this stuff, right? Then you think, well, we just need to give them Wikipedia and we're done. But actually, now that we have all this information, we have this new frontier that we didn't have to learn how to attend in the same way that we do now. And now learning is actually about how do you put information in context? How do you actually assess the weight of different things that you can all look up online? But, but very soon, mm. by the way, we're going to have mach machine learning generated Wikipedia pages that will be extremely plausible and entirely false. They'll just be making it up, but they'll sound like they were written by a human. They'll have footnotes that look legitimate. This window of time in which you can trust what you Google is going to be very short in human history. And that frontier always requires the human. It always requires relationship. It requires community. I think it was very interesting when earlier on you asked Jocelyn, you know, what, what should a family do if they're in this two to 3% of addiction? And it was very interesting that her answer was, they need to come talk to me because that's mm. a learning opportunity for that whole family. Everyone's going to have to be involved and you can't Google it. You're going to need to talk to a, a very, very wise person who's going to help you develop wisdom as a community. And this comes at a time, coincidentally or, or perhaps not, when our, apparently our capacity to think critically is collapsing. <laughs> Why would you even need to think critically when you can go, hey, Siri? Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's that E.O. Wilson quote of we're drowning in information but we're starved of wisdom. Wow. So, you know, wow. really rethinking that the higher order thinking skills is really what we're wow. hoping to free up by being able to Google stuff. I don't need to remember my phone number or I don't right. need to remember that fact, but I need to help people solve these problems. Mm. And I sort of jokingly say, I'm just a girl standing in front of the internet wondering how we can stay connected and human. Wow. Um, and <laughs> I, I give all these presentations and do all of this work and people say, well, how many minutes of screen time and what should I do? Oh. And I'm like... I still don't know because I don't know you as a human being and, yeah. and I need to know you and your family and all of that richness and complexity to help you solve that problem, which probably took several years to kind of get to the really, you know, tricky point. It's not going to be changed in a week because you had a went to a lecture and gave your kid a lecture. So... People ask yeah. me, uh, what's the right age to give my child a smartphone? And I say, well, I was about 51 when I started to feel like I had a healthy relationship mm. with my smartphone. Yeah. So maybe 51, aim for that. <laughs> yeah, and my, my answer to that is when the parents are ready to deal with all of the issues that yeah. potentially come out of using that. In, wow. in Sydney right now, we have all sorts of really awful issues being uncovered with online chat rooms and young people in various high schools because they – get carried away and they don't understand the implications of being racist or anti-Semitic and a uh -huh. whole range of things. So uh -huh. really parents, are, they're not digital natives, they're digital orphans. They grew up, they're in technology without a generation of, you know, elders and, and wise ones to actually guide them through it because we're all running around freaking out about the next, you know, technology moral panic. Rather than I say you've got to stop freaking out and start facting up, get the facts mm. about what is happening and help young people understand how their brains work and why this is going to have a much bigger impact on them than it, it potentially does on us. You know, for me, I was 32 before I had a smartphone in my hand. Well, more of this ahead, moral panic and otherwise. We're with Jocelyn Brewer, <laughs> psychologist specialising in technology use and internet addiction. Also Andy Crouch, author of The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. Also My TechWise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. <music> Our 
As a society, we're often fascinated by the possibilities of technology. What can we achieve next and what problems can we solve? So what about the possibilities of tech in our education system? We've touched on it before, but how might it transform the learning process and what ethical issues should we be wary of? In China, for example, some classrooms have experimented with headbands. When worn by students, they can tell whether a child is focusing and robots that can measure students' health and engagement levels. So, is this the kind of future we envision for our classrooms in Australia, or a dystopia, perhaps, to stay far away from? Simon Buckingham Shum is director of the Connected Intelligence Centre at the University of Technology, Sydney. He spoke with ABC's Anthony Fennell. I think there's a bigger question here, and it's what kind of education system do we want to try and create with these technologies? Alan Finkel, the chief scientist for Australia, gave this fantastic speech about what kind of society do we want to be and let's use our technology to try and create that reality. And we have to ask the same question around education. What kind of education system do we want to offer? So let me tell you about a magical tool, a product that I've got, okay? It's guaranteed to raise your children's ATAR result. Is that a product that schools should be rushing to buy? and that parents should be rushing to buy, because this is exactly the kind of tool that's now having such a massive impact in China, because in that context, there's such a competition for, you know, university places and parents will do everything they can to get their kids into university. And that kind of coaching and hothouse tutoring is what they're willing to pay for. But the bigger question is, is that kind of assessment and the stress it creates, and the fact that many thought leaders are are arguing that this is no longer an assessment system equipping the next generation for our future society. That raises the question of whether we should be trying to invest R&D into creating those kinds of products, or products that are going to equip students with the other kinds of competencies. And what direction are we heading? You're interested in trying to ensure that AI is used effectively and ethically in education in the future, but are there many others looking in, looking in the same direction? Yes, indeed. We focus on trying to give good formative feedback to students on their writing to improve their critical thinking, on their teamwork to give them feedback on how well they worked as a team and so forth. And Australia, in fact, is very lucky. We have some of the world's leading groups in the field of learning analytics and AI and education right here in, in Australia and indeed here in Sydney. There are many people in education who are suspicious of data analytics and AI, and we're busy trying to work with them and with teachers and students to help them shape these technologies to become tools that they trust. I mean, ultimately, this comes down to trust. Do we trust these things? And if so, why? And what are the standards for trusting these tools? Simon Buckingham Shum speaking there with ABC's Anthony Fennell. We'll put a link to their full conversation on the God Forbid website. Well, uh, Andy Crouch, you're learned. You've been to the finest universities in in America. How do you see this educational challenge? Do you want your kids to get into college or do you want your kids to be educated regardless of what happens? Wow. I was very struck by the idea there that um, we really have to ask, what assessment are we educating towards? And what we certainly see in the U.S., I'm sure it's true here, and and really it's it's true around the world, especially in the most aspirational countries like China, is a tremendous uh, technologification, (laughs) technicalification of the understanding of the purpose of education. We, we increasingly believe STEM, science, technology, engineering, math, is the path to a stable, secure career. And Humanities is what you do when you don't get the marks to get into STEM. Exactly. And uh, may God have mercy on your soul, and you'll probably spend your life working at Starbucks. Uh, so we want our kids to avoid that fate worse than death. And so we orient more and more of our education towards technical fields. Now, technical fields are fabulous and fascinating. I'm married to an experimental physicist, and I I find the work she does extremely admirable and far beyond my math's capacities, among other things. But when that becomes your index of achievement, there's a lot of ways you can technologize the educational process to get uh, someone ready for that. 
the problem is that even once you have all those technical skills, they have to be applied in a human society. <laughs> and a human society is made up not just of technical problems. In fact, very little of the fundamental problems we face are technical. We saw this with COVID. Within a few days of COVID, we knew the entire genetic sequence of this particular coronavirus. We had a very good idea of how to actually intervene with an effective vaccine. And it still took, uh, I don't know, 18 to 24 months before we were even at the starting line of a, of a sort of technical response. And in the meantime, what we had was human problems of very profound sort for which there is no engineering. We need many more people, yes, with the technical ability to understand the underlying phenomena, but who actually are prepared to address the issues of wisdom. And I'm very concerned that our whole educational system is getting off the rails in the direction of pure technique when what we are most going to need in the future are people who are formed human beings <laughs> who can operate with wisdom in a very complex world, including with technical facility. So, you know, that then drives a lot of decisions back into the primary years, the secondary years. What are we actually, you know, teaching our students and how are we teaching our students? But let's make sure we're aiming at the right formed human being at the end. I don't know if this is a applicable analogy, but we know very well how to make a piano and how to tune one. You're a pianist. How to play one remains a mystery from the (laughs) days of Mozart. That was a clavichord, I suppose. Yeah, and well, I remember playing a uh, a movement of a Beethoven sonata for my teacher uh, when I was about 15, and I played it quite technically well, and I played it with no access to the pain that is essential to Beethoven. And it was probably the most important moment in my whole musical training. He got actually very angry, and he said, I don't want you to play this again until you're 30 years old. Hmm. He said, because you do not understand the pain that Beethoven's expressing through this. And you're playing it as if it's just a technical matter. This is a paradox, Jocelyn Brewer, isn't it? Because to bring your human self to the work means to bring imperfection, yet the whole point of technology is to get things done perfectly right because humans can't do it right. That's why you have a calculator at its most basic level. Well, they're all tools, aren't they? They're all designed to help us get closer at doing what we need to do more quickly and more productively. I think the question about all of these sort of issues with technology in the classroom is one that I get super passionate about because I was a teacher uh, before I was a psychologist and I'm a humanities graduate. I was a social science teacher. So again, going back to that sense of the human who's delivering uh, all of these things and and getting beyond, I guess, the subject matter, so the, the key learning area that we're talking about and looking at the capabilities within the Australian curriculum, there's seven of them and beyond numeracy and literacy, we have things like critical and creative thinking. We have an Mm. ethical understanding. We have intercultural understanding. Mm. All of these things that Mm. really we're talking about, yes, you can use AI and are we teaching to the test and do we care about your ATAR or your NAPLAN score? Is that who you are as a human? No, but where are we actually teaching these social, emotional skills, the skills of how to stay human in a digital world and, and you know, the, the skills of self-regulation, which are really the skills that we were talking about earlier in terms of when it comes to overcoming digital dependence and distraction are really the skills that we need to take serious effort into um, embedding into classrooms. Can't mum and dad take care of that and we leave the school for getting kids' job ready? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's a partnership. Again, I could bang on for a long time about how um, schools are burdened with many things that mm. a generation ago mm. we we just wouldn't expect of schools and, and teachers, classroom like teachers. Not even parents, you mean? <laughs> yeah, even having access to somebody's personal email. You know, there's all sorts of issues that add to teacher workload. And again, in New South Wales, we know that there's a shortage of teachers and a you know pay claim that has been made based on just how much work teachers. Um, really do do that goes beyond obviously the nine to three when the bell rings. Indeed. Well, uh, the bell will toll on the Wits End Quiz <laughs> up next. That's mm-hmm. God forbid. Wits End. Uh, yes, it's Wits End, the God forbid quiz. As always, we begin with the buzzers. Now, Andy Crouch is a devoted father and a committed Christian. So when his kids spend too much time on their smartphones, this is what happens. Test your buzzer. That's it, young man. No Bible stories for you tonight. 
Oh, you <laughs> cruel <laughs> man. Okay, Jocelyn Brewer. That's exactly my parenting philosophy. <laughs> Jocelyn Brewer is a psychologist who specializes in internet addiction. She begins every session with this word. Test your buzzer. Confess! <laughs> Confess. Okay, question. First question. Um, I mentioned earlier there's this first-person simulation game, I Am Jesus Christ. In the game, players can walk in the footsteps of Jesus in a first-person retelling of the story of Christ from birth to resurrection. But true or false, in the game, you can have a battle with Satan that consists of deflecting fireballs. No Bible stories for you tonight. True. I'm going to go with true. Yeah, you. You're quite right, Andy. <laughs> You'll be good at this game. So are your kids. Uh, it's a is, slight... is there a PG version where you can, like, stop at the crucifixion well, or the I... crucifixion is, like, not too gory? Uh, yeah, that's uh, – there should be. There, there needs to be. Like um, in Fortnite, when you die in Fortnite, there's just rainbows. But... <laughs> So you, uh, I don't know that you, you did in the Bible though. You don't deflect fireballs, but in the game you do. Um, <laughs> That's why I chose true. It's so it's so out of tune with the Bible itself. I knew it had to be in there. Yeah. Uh, they're currently also the same game makers working on Noah's Ark, a simulator all about uh, constructing and managing a uh, large ship. Next question: Nomophobia is the irrational fear of what? Confess. Not having your phone with you. No mobile phone no phobia. Mobile. Yeah, do you ha- ever suffer from it, Jocelyn? No, I look forward to getting it. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Andy? I mean, you must have that moment. Go, where's my phone? Where's my phone? I do have that moment. I do have that moment. Next question. What's ringsiety? Confess! I don't think it's a real word. Anxiety about your phone ringing? It was coined in 2008. Ringsiety describes a condition where individuals hear the phone ringing when it actually hasn't. Oh, it's like phantom vibration syndrome where you think <laughs> your phone is vibrating but it's not. I, that's, yeah. that's what I have. Mm. Okay, next question. Which pope declared the internet is a gift from God and which... Australian Prime Minister said social media was used by the devil. Oh. I don't think he meant the I... devil had like a, an actual account. <laughs> he, has, he has legions well, God of has an account. <laughs> God has a Facebook profile. Oh, really? It's very funny, yes. Haven't, don't you follow God on Facebook? <laughs> I did, but he you, didn't accept you, my you friend did. request. <laughs> no Bible stories for you tonight. <laughs> <laughs> For the Pope, I'm I'm going to go with Benedict, uh, the, the 16th, was it? The uh, next but one Pope? Not Benedict. No. It, it, was, was, um, it, was it, it was Pope Francis, Francis in 2014. Oh, okay. But the Australian Prime Ministers are, would, would be tough for you, Andy, because you're an I'm American. Morrison. Confess! I'm gonna, I'll, I'll throw in a Scott Morrison. Yeah, quite, quite correct. Yeah. Scott Morrison said social media could be used by the evil one, presumably not Anthony Albanese, to undermine Australian <laughs> society. He was speaking at the Australian Christian Churches National Conference uh, on the Gold Coast. Um, though in regards to Pope Francis, he did make that remark saying the internet is a gift from God in 2014 in a statement released by the Vatican to mark the Catholic Church's World Communications Day. But the Pope has said that the internet offers immense possibilities for encounter and solidarity. And that is something truly good, he says. He's right there, isn't he? I agree. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Well, with that, we've reached the end of uh, of God Forbid. I must uh, get online. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Your phone is, is vibrating. Yeah, it's time to check it. Yeah, it is. Thank you, Andy Crouch, for being on the show and for coming to Australia. Thank you, James. Andy Crouch is uh, the author of My TechWise Life, Growing Up and Making Choices in a World of Devices. Jocelyn Brewer, thanks for being on the show as well. So much fun. Thanks. A speaker, an educator, a psychologist specialising in technology use. And with that, we have reached the end of God Forbid on RN Summer. You can follow the podcast on the ABC Listen app. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good. This has been God Forbid.
been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.